Tonight's an interesting one. <laughs> the Apocrypha. Uh, why are we doing this? Well, uh, we have about a year and a half ago, those of you who were here do remember, right, the Scribes and Scriptures Conference. And uh, when we were listening to Dr. John Mead and Dr. Peter Gurry from Phoenix Seminary, uh, they were they had a lot of information on their screens. They were talking about the transmission, translation of uh, the text that is the scripture. And, uh, and throughout the few days that they were here, or one day that they were here, they quoted several times the Apocrypha and uh, didn't really have too many qualifying remarks about what it was or um, why it was in there, but it was just, it's more, it was an academic endeavor. And as they were discussing these things, we had some folks who were like, wait, what is that? Uh, why is that up on the screen? Uh, we just had scripture on the last screen, and now there's something from the Apocrypha, and what, how are we supposed to think about it? Some people obviously will be, would be more familiar with what the Apocrypha is, um, where it comes from. Maybe some have interacted with it to some degrees, maybe in their backgrounds religiously. Uh, and others, particularly in our culture here, uh, there's not really much reference to the Apocrypha in, in Utah. <laughs> so uh, those maybe from the Utah culture have interacted with it quite a bit less. So um, that's why we're taking a quick look at what this is, um, because there would be some Bibles that you would open, and you would see uh, the Old Testament as we read it, and then you'd see the Apocrypha, and then you'd see the New Testament. You'd be like, what is that? What? Hang on, what's that doing right there? Why is that in the middle? Um, so we just want to be able to have at least a measure of ability to interact with the idea of what these um, intertestamental books are. Someone call them deuterocanonical books. Um, what they are and how we should think about them. So I will give the... It is a significantly sized caveat that I am not an Apocrypha scholar. <laughs> I have not interacted with the Apocrypha as a body of literature to a, to a significant degree. Uh, so even a lot of this was, is a learning experience for me. Um, so just take that for what it's worth, that those who are well-versed in the Apocrypha, I don't think I'll say things that strongly disagree with what they would have to say, but they probably would have much more to say than I do. Uh, and we'll circle back to that at the end because that uh, could be a point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of instruction. So um, let's think through the study that we did. So we say, okay, so we were wanting to talk briefly about the Apocrypha. Well, then why did we do the Minor Prophets? Because ironically, the Minor Prophets last year and a half really was um, an introduction <laughs> to say a few things tonight. Uh, and it was, I think, uh, I think you, would, you would have a point that's being made when the introduction is uh, a year and a half. And then the topic is a night. So um, <laughs> we, we went through the minor prophets because they lead us historically to the moments before the Apocrypha came into existence, the Apocryphal books came into existence. So where have we been? I mean, we've been really from uh, right after the two kingdoms or the United Kingdom split into the two kingdoms. There, we, we've been all throughout the, maybe those 600 years of Israel's history, through the divided kingdom, through uh, the 
Assyrian attack on, on the northern kingdom of Israel through the Babylonian exile of the, of the kingdom of Judah and um, past the exile into the post-exilic period and the rebuilding of the temple and, and the walls and all of this. Um, and then, as we often speak of, you know, God sort of goes silent, where there's, there's silence in the, um, uh, in the scriptures. So the Old Testament ends with notes of warning and judgment. The day of the Lord is spoken often of. And then it's just quiet for those 400 years, approximately, until Matthew chapter 1, all right, the, uh, describing the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of the Christ. And so it's probably true that within our circles where most people aren't likely very well versed, and I'd even throw myself uh, historically, hopefully a little bit less so now, but historically in that category of not being extraordinarily, extraordinarily well versed about what happened in those 400 years. What happened after the building of uh, the temple, the this, this second temple era, um, and what happened politically, like where you have this small group of freed exiles, and then when Jesus is born, they're under Roman rule. Like, what, how did that happen? Um, so again, I'm no intertestamental scholar, but generally what happened is that after the kingdom of Babylon uh, had their rule, and while, while, uh, while even Judah was in exile, uh, there was some freedom in their being allowed to practice things. Certainly in the return, uh, there's freedom in being allowed to practice religiously, to rebuild, to worship even at the temple. Um, and so that extends even from the silence of Scripture into the first like hundred years of the intertestamental period, so to, to about 350 um, B.C. Then, and as we saw prophesied in the Minor Prophets, Alexander the Great arrives on the scene, and he defeats Darius of Persia, um, and he defeats um, the Judean region as well. So they go under Greek rule. And during the time that they're under Greek rule, I mean, Alexander the Great believes that in the superiority of Greek ideas, in the superiority of Greek culture, the superiority of the Greek language, and so he wants to subjugate everybody to be a Greek, to become a Greek. And uh, I don't know when exactly the term was coined, but this is the beginning of the Hellenization or the battle with the Hellenization of this world, so which is the, the Greekizing of the world. So he wants everybody to be like him, to adopt his gods, to adopt his language, uh, because it is superior. After all, he just destroyed them in battle. Um, so during this process of the Greek rule, there was Alexander the Great, and then following him, his successor was uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, he was even stronger toward this idea and restrictive religiously. So he's refusing religious freedom to the Jews. He eventually, even in very dramatic fashion, he overthrows the line uh, of priests, he desecrates the temple, he, he sacrifices pigs, right, these unclean animals in the temple, he demands that everybody uh, worships Zeus, and he sets up an idol, or, or um, um, an altar to Zeus in the temple, so it's very inflammatory uh, and restrictive from a religious perspective, and, and this leads to 
uh, revolt. It leads to people respond to the Jews saying, no, we're not, we're not okay with this. We're not going to go with this. So the Maccabean revolt. Um, but during this whole period, one of the things that's being set up very strongly is the tension because between, um, between basically groups of Jews. How are people going to respond? How are the Jews going to respond to this oppressive pagan culture that wants them to change, that wants them to lose their, their language and their culture and their religion and their worship, all of it. They want to drop it and become Greek. So there really are, they basically become two groups of Jews in the ways that they respond. There are the conservatives and then what you might call the liberals. <laughs> there, there's the conservative group that says, let's conserve the values. We want to obey the Torah. We need to be faithful to God. We're waiting for his promise. Everything remains as it has been. If we die for it, we die for it. Like just wanting to hang on to those ideas. And then there's the, those with the woke ideology, right? There's the, there's the adapters. There's those that say, okay, there are some benefits to Greek culture. And there were. Right, there are some things that we appreciate. We can shift on this. We can change over here. And then there's, a, there's a, probably too much of an adoption of Greek ideas, Greek worship, um, assimilating their ideas into the old ones. So um, who are we going to be? And there's a battle for fidelity within the Jewish society. You can obviously see the parallels, some of the parallels. Uh, to us today. Um, and then about 50, 60 years before Christ is born, Rome comes through and they defeat the Greeks. And so they, and this leads eventually to right, Herod being the king of, of Judah. Um, and so now it's a relatively recent Roman rule that's been, that's been established in the land into which Christ is born. So one of the things then that these books do, like what, what are these books? Well, they're a collection of, uh, depending on who's counting, up to 16 books that were written between 300 BC and 100 AD. So during this, uh, that would be 300 years before Christ, but if you go 400 AD to 100 BC, this 500 years, there are a few that were written after the turn of the century. They fill in the gap between the Testaments, historically, um, poetically, <laughs> wisdom literature. There's, there's a variety of different things. They, they, sort of, they are the literature of the day. And um, they're written from a variety of different places, Palestine, Alexandria, which is in Egypt, uh, Antioch and Syria, possibly even Persia, back in Babylon. Um, they're written in a variety of languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, um, originally. And, and a lot of these things we don't have full answers to, like original documents. Um, so we might have it existing in several translations, and uh, we don't know which one came first on a couple occasions. Um, so that's what they are, meaning historically that's where they find their place. Now, why did they rise to prominence? Why, why have some viewed them very valuably and others not so valuably? Well, historically, Jews appreciated these books. They were helpful books of the time. Uh, there's, well, let's, uh, let me come back, let me put a pause on it. Let me come back to that. So the name that we call it, the Apocrypha. So the definition of Apocrypha means hidden things. 
which is a Greek word. Uh, there's one example of it. There's uh, three times I think that it's used in the New Testament, but I put the Colossians one up because we just re- recently went through it. So in, in whom Christ uh, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, so it simply means something that's been concealed or veiled or is inside of something else or put aside over here. Maybe it has a cover on it, something like this. Uh, it's simply the idea of being hidden. Now, that is the Protestant word to refer to this collection of books um, because we don't believe that they are canonical books. They're not scriptural books. So we would call them the hidden things. And one of the way, as an example, uh, one of the early church fathers, Origen, he called them apocrypha uh, because he wanted to store them away. They're valuable books, but they're, they're set apart from the public reading and church liturgy. They're not scriptures, so we're going to set them apart right over here. Helpful books, appreciate them, read them, even study them. They're a part of his library, you might say, right? They're on his bookshelf, but it's not scripture, and so he sets them aside right here. So this is like a Protestant way of referring to this collection of books, is that they're set aside, they're hidden away. Um, significantly to the discussion, we're not going to get into a deep discussion of canonicity, but that's one of the reasons that this has risen to prominence is that there are other groups. So unsurprisingly, the the Roman Catholic and so the Eastern Orthodox churches, they view not always the same exact list. Different groups have different lists, uh, but they view some of these books as canonical. So they would not call these apocryphal books. They would call them the deuterocanonical books, meaning the in-between canon, right? You have the, the first canon and the, and the second canon, our Old Testament and our New Testament, and then you have the canon in between, the apocryphal books. Um, because some groups have viewed them as canonical and others have viewed them as non-canonical, you can see why there's tension over the way that people would look at these books. And what's really happened, generally, is that in Protestant circles, uh, we've moved from maybe like an origin neutral, like, yep, yeah, I have them, they're on my shelf, they're right there, I appreciate them, but we're not, it's, not, it's not scripture. We've moved really away from that to a very negative, maybe a pejorative view of the hidden things, like, they're cultic, they're secret, they're dangerous, they're, um, they're heretical. They're like, we probably a pretty negative view of what they are. And in the opposite direction, rather than maybe even just viewing them as another book, the, uh, like a scriptural book to them, the Catholic Church has doubled down and elevated them. And then like, no, these are supremely canonical books. Like they're, they're excellent. So some have maybe gone away and like, we're not even going to look at that. We're not going to touch it. No, you know, stay, stay as far away from it as you can because those are the hidden, the secret books. And then the other view has been like, no, 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 let's promote them. Let's put them forward uh, even more than we might put other ones forward because they're the ones that are disagreed upon. So what's in them? <laughs> what are these books? Um, so there are, Uh, Not unlike when we would look at the Bible and we would see different types of literature, there are different types of literature, different genres inside the Apocrypha. So there are some of them that are historical narratives. Um, uh, First Esdras is 
is like a retelling of Ezra and Nehemiah. First and Second Maccabees tells the story of uh, the revolt, what led to it, what happened during it, uh, the Maccabean revolt. Um, so there's some that are that would be quoted historically, that were that informed what occurred historically, that Josephus would reference and other historians would reference. There are others of them that are much like our wisdom genre, which is our right, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Um, that would be the wisdom of Ben Sirah, also called Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, and then the wisdom of Solomon and portions of Baruch. So uh, just so that you're aware, probably the most, uh, the most significant or impactful, maybe, books that have echoed through church history would be First and Second Maccabees, because they're historical. They tell some of the, a, a big piece of the intertestamental story. And then the wisdom of Ben Sirah and the wisdom of Solomon. Those wisdom books have been very influential. I'll circle back to that again at the end, but... You remember even a few months ago in, Col in Colossians, we referenced and talked a little bit about some of the impact of uh, the teaching of, of Ben Sirah or Sirach on the early church. There's some other kinds of books, the historical romance or fictions, right? Just uh, stories of people who are seeking to be faithful and uh, they're not true stories, they're, they're uh, narratives like a think along the lines of like a pilgrim's progress kind of an idea. Someone who was in a dangerous situation or a compromising situation and they were faithful. These are like stories of faithfulness to the Torah because it's this group of Jews that are promoting that idea. They want people to do that. So they have sort of heroes uh, of the faith, you might say. Tobit, Judith, 3rd Maccabees. Um, then some of them are more liturgical, meaning they fit within... Um, they fit within the first canon, the Old Testament. So there are two books that are additions. Esther and Daniel are additions to those two books. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the prayer of Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh was a horribly wicked king in the Old Testament. And it's, it, there's just a mention that he repents. And so this is like what might Manasseh have said. And so it's, uh, it's a prayer of confession of Manasseh, not actually, of course, written or said by Manasseh, but just somebody writing uh, what might have been something like what he said. Uh, and then Psalm 151, which is uh, just a short little like six or seven verse psalm about David and Goliath. It's just like, my brothers looked good, but God chose me. I went and fought Goliath because God was with me. The end kind of a thing, just a short little poem. Uh, about David and Goliath, and then there's a few that are uh, more have a an essay point to them, like they're written in maybe a little bit more academic form, and it's like there's like a proposition to them and and some evidence toward a point, and then one of them that's uh, apocalyptic, Second Esdras, and I believe that one was written uh, later, like that's the one that's closer to 100 A.D., even after the fall of Jerusalem. And so it's like a, a lament of Jerusalem and, uh, and an apocalyptic perspective of what may happen next for Jerusalem. Um, so you can see that there's a lot of different uh, kinds of books, different genres of books. Um, 
<laughs> I'm still like that, as you can see. I'm not exactly sure how far to go into different ones. So let's, maybe let's just take uh, a few examples uh, and talk maybe for just a couple more minutes. Not maybe about all of them, but just about a few of them. So uh, let's take an example of one of these historical romances. So Judith, what's the story of Judith about? So this is a pretty, it's, a, it's another short story. And this is during the siege. It's set during the siege, Nebuchadnezzar's army of Judah. And one of, its, one of his, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's commanders, I don't even know exactly how to say his name, Holofernes or something. Um, he, they've come against Judah, but they're saved when Judith, who is a widow, a very pious, holy widow, she manages to sort of infiltrate uh, Holofernes' company, and she gets an audience with him. And then at a time when he's maybe not paying close attention or something, uh, she beheads him. Way to go, Judith, right? A story of like uh, somebody who's maybe weak, overthrowing somebody who's mighty by wisdom and fidelity and faithfulness to God's ways and God's principles, and so she's like a heroine of the faith. It's somebody that we want to emulate. A story that's told, a legend about Judith. Um, you can see even from that example that some of these are uh, sort of remixes of other Bible stories. They're, re, they're retold. You have a lot of jail in Judith uh, where you have an enemy commander and she tricks him and has an audience with him and gets him to be vulnerable. And, you know, he falls asleep there and then she puts a tent stake through his head. I'm like, okay, go, go jail. So sort of like a, a, new, a new story of jail with Judith. Um, so that's like one example. And it's probably um, meant to be read during, the, during this intertestamental period as a story of saying, we can do this. Like, we can defeat the great enemy that's come against us. Simply need to be patient, wait for moments of weakness, strike at the right time, be faithful to God in his ways, that sort of an idea, okay? Um, the liturgical corpus. Now, let's look for a moment at the additions to Esther and Daniel. So, one of the uh, <laughs> supposed or quote-unquote issues in Esther from a canonical perspective, is that Esther doesn't explicitly mention God. It's the only book that doesn't. And so what do you think perhaps an addition to Esther might be? It's a theology. <laughs> it's a rich explanations of God. So it's a Greek translation of Esther. It's found in the Septuagint text, and uh, it contains several additional chapters that aren't found in the Hebrew text. And these expansions don't really change the core story very much, but they're to make the book explicitly religious through mentions of God and the Torah and maintaining the religious system of the day. So like you can see, it is partially political. It's partially cultural. It's revolutionary. They're trying to call people back to the old ideas. Uh, and so there's these uh, additions to Esther. There's also kind of a sweet, like, dream sequence um, where, you know, this battle between Mordecai and Haman is represented by uh, somebody having a dream about these two dueling dragons. So if you want to read the story about the dragon dreams, that's in. 
uh, Esther, the additions to Esther. Um, the additions to Daniel are also pretty interesting. There's three of them. Uh, so they're inserted between, the first of them is inserted between Daniel uh, 3.23 and 3.24. And it's a prayer of Azariah, which was one of his friends, and the song of the three. So this prayer and then the hymn that follows it were probably later composed as like for, lit, for liturgy, to use within worship. Um, as a reflection, kind of like the prayer of Manasseh, of what might these three have been thinking? What might their religious response in this moment have been? So it's like a song or prayer that's later written, that's put in the mouth of Azariah, that's put in the mouth of one of these boys. And so then the story takes on even maybe richer theological significance, affirming, you know, God's justice or his glory, even in the midst of literally fiery trials. Um, then the second addition to Daniel is called Susanna, and it's a short story um, with a couple wicked Jewish elders who are trying to trap a beautiful girl named Susanna to have an affair with her, but then she refuses, and they accuse her of adultery, and they're trying to have her killed so that she can't tell her side of the story, but then young Daniel is a very wise young man, and it's just sort of setting up the stage. It's like a, pre, uh, like a prequel to Daniel, because he's like, wait, what's going on here? And he figures out the elders are being evil and wicked and deceptive, and he goes and he rescues uh, Susanna. So it's almost like a fictional detective story of Daniel. Um, his cleverness and the need for discernment, uh, even when something seems overwhelmingly against the one who is uh, righteous. So it sets the stage a little bit for his, his life in the court and being, uh, being discerning and being the interpreter um, in Babylon. And then the third one is called uh, Bell and the Dragon, and this is the third edition to Daniel, uh, in which he basically uses his wisdom to show the falseness of, uh, of the Babylonian idols. So uh, he, kind of like his friends did earlier, he refuses to... Um, worship the statue of Bel to eat sacrifices, and then he basically is kind of like a callback to Exodus, where he uh, proves that the king's like snake is not immortal, which is the dragon, when he manages to kill it. And then in the final scene, <laughs> the prophet Habakkuk comes and feeds him while he's in the lion's den. So, like you can see, it's very di all of these really are very different and that you can you can a lot of them you can go back and you can pinpoint why that might have been supplied why that might have been written why someone's imagination was like you know what this would be an interesting maybe for a good religious reason maybe for a political reason maybe just for the expression of the imagination for a variety um, of reasons so that that's some of the liturgical ones um then the wisdom literature, as you can imagine, is based largely on Solomon. It patterns after Solomon. Uh, and these are just you know, wise men who have also written. This is something that's happened for a long time in a lot of different cultures. And so this is the uh, Jewish wise men in the, in the intertestamental period. Some of them are writing. Um, and Sirach, the first one, is the, is the one that lasted the longest and has been the most impactful, even in the way of... Uh, in the way of the early church thinking, in the way of uh, some of the, you, you see notes of this throughout some of the 
some of the scriptural writings as well as uh, how the early church fathers were thinking. So, um, yeah, there's... Uh, it probably, it probably is not helpful to go into all of them for like two to three minutes exactly because there's too, there's too many of them and too many to remember. But you get the sense of the variety of uses of these different books. And one of the reasons that they rose to like uh, in the Catholic Church canonical prominence is, so remember that Alexander the Great comes through and he's seeking to establish Greek thinking, Greek language. And it's not long after he comes through that the Septuagint begins getting translated. And so they start right with the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and then they translate, the Septuagint translates most of these. I don't know if it's all of them, but it's most of the apocryphal books are in the Septuagint. Um, and so, and for that, that's one of the reasons that from then, because they were right, they were translating scriptural and impactful literature. And because they were within the same document, that carried forward in some, uh, in some circles or in some ways of thinking. Um, but they're, within the Septuagint, they were not, they were not just translating the, the canonical books. They were translating, they're like, oh, these would be other good books to have in the Greek for Jews who have moved to Greek speech and uh, Greek ways of thinking. Um, so that's a little bit about when it happened, wh why they happened, what's inside of them. So how are we supposed to look at this body of literature as Protestants today? as those who believe that these never had any place within the canon. They're not scriptural books. The Holy Spirit did not inspire these books. He did not inspire the authors. These are not his breathed out words. So should we just throw them aside? Should we look at them as heresy? Should we look at them as danger, as stay away, warning labels, right? Is that how we're supposed to look at them? We know we're not supposed to look at them the Catholic way. Or do we take a little bit of a moderate approach? And uh, maybe let's talk down both trails for a minute. So what, are, what would be some of the value uh, of these books? Do, do they possess value? And would we be benefited by interacting with them at all? Well, one of the things that these books do accomplish is that they paint the picture a little bit more fully of what was happening in Judaism during the Second Temple period. Right? They tell, there's some historical books. This is the prominent literature of the day. It, it sets the scene uh, of what was happening in Jewish culture. And that's, uh, that's cultural, that's political, and it is the scene into which Christ is born and Christ grows up and he ministers. So the Gospels are set in this period of history. So would we do well as those who are seeking to understand the culture of the day, to understand how the people were thinking, to understand what the Jewish culture was like, to think a little about the Apocrypha, to, to perhaps interact with the Apocrypha? Well, maybe there is a benefit there of being able to understand what's happening culturally. 
you can imagine that that, like all, all of what's happened in the last four to 500 years in Jewish history has left a significant mark on the way that people think and the way that people interact. And how, like they've moved from post-exile building the second temple and building the walls to just being dominated politically, dominated religiously. Everyone trying to shut down all of the things of Yahweh. You can't talk like that anymore. You can't look like that anymore. You have to look Greek, sound Greek, think Greek. And many people have gone for it. So that you can like feel, even just a little, just imagining those steps, you can feel the stubbornness, the tight-fisted nature of even the conservative Jews concerning the law, concerning the Torah. Right? They've had everybody just try to take it out of their hands. Everybody try to talk them away from it, walk them back from some of those principles. So a few things make even perhaps more sense in the Gospels as you read through some of the Apocrypha, because you have very strongly the idea of a messianic military conqueror. That's what people are expecting now. Why? That doesn't really make a lot of sense if we jump, at least historically, if we jump from the exile or the post-exile to Matthew 1. Right? The history helps you make sense of particularly in this moment why that is supremely important to them. So we talk a lot about Rome right, and why they were looking for somebody to overthrow Rome and to free them. But there, it's sort of the, the whole history behind that. Like we have Babylon and then we have Greek and then we have Rome. Uh, so, so considering that could be helpful. Um, and so not only the military conqueror, but then like we said, the high esteem of the Torah and strict observance to the law. So if the conservative category of Jews has just had people trying to sort of like pry their cold dead fingers off the Torah, and then even it's, it sets up the early church a little bit too, and perhaps why the gospel was so, no, I don't even like this word really, but radical. It was, it was a, a very different way of thinking. It was like the freedom in Christ and that Christ fulfills the law. And now they're free. Like that's sort of like, hmm, is this, is this another trick? Is this another, like, you're just trying to get us to walk away from this? And they've established, they've sort of thrown their roots in deep, even to the negatively so, to where they've, like, built upon the law. They've established extra religious legal systems that were outside even of God's intent and misled them in other ways, right? But they, they're sort of hanging on to that. So uh, you can see the suspicion and restraint, perhaps from the gospel's message of freedom, um, in Jesus' interaction and then in some of Paul's interaction. Um, so I think that's one reason, that, it, that it could, there could be some value in informing some of the culture uh, of what was happening, as well as perhaps some of the um, ways, of, yeah, ways of thinking and resistance to even some of the, the biblical message, why they, because they'd added so much to the law and were looking so strongly that way that they missed some of the, perhaps the prophetic elements. They missed what they were intended to be looking for because they were so strongly in the Pentateuch, perhaps, and had built upon it. Um, that, uh, another reason there could be value, um, and we have to be, I'm 
being careful with this one, uh, but that the New Testament authors were familiar with this literature. The New Testament authors, being Jews of the day, they're familiar with the Apocrypha. It's in their library too. Like they've read some of these things and interacted with some of these ideas. And I think that that relationship could very easily be overstated, um, but it could be understated too. Like a not being aware at all of that might not, it, like there could be some color that's presented to the picture uh, if we saw, oh look, yeah, you see that idea come through in some of the apocalyptic literature that maybe some of the language even is similar. Not that it's quoted, it's not really quoted, but there's parallels. So I'll give an example of this. And again, this is, uh, I'm, I'm hesitantly moving towards this a little bit. So uh, this, is, this is Jesus. So uh, Jesus is in, in his prayer in Matthew 6, uh, and then what follows it in Matthew 11. Simply, like Sirach comes before Christ. Um, so note some similarities, perhaps. So Jesus' prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then his comments right after the prayer, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So did Jesus need Ben Sirach to say any of these things beforehand? No. Did he even quote him? No. But he read him, probably. And here's something that Ben Sirach had said. Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Does anyone harbor anger against another and expect healing from the Lord? If one has no mercy toward another like himself, can he then seek pardon for his own sins? So you can perhaps hear an echo of an idea as presented in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, some of those precious verses uh, that Jesus says. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So then Sirach, remember, uh, one of the things he's doing is he views the logos, he views the word as wisdom, and wisdom and instruction are very closely related. So when you see instruction, this is still pre-Messiah, pre-Christ, so he's using this uh, wisdom as personified as an idea. So draw near to me, you who are uneducated, lodge in the house of instruction. Put your neck under her yoke and let your souls receive instruction so that it is, uh, it is to be found close by. See with your own eyes that I have labored, but little and found for myself rest or much serenity. So in some of the gospel writers, perhaps even some of Jesus's own conversation, and then certainly in the early church fathers who are also writing culturally but not scripturally, in the early church fathers, you can see reverberations of the Apocrypha in some of the way that they spoke. Whether, and whether it was conscious or subconscious, not in, from Jesus' perspective, but whether it's conscious or subconscious from the author's perspective is somewhat irrelevant as to the impact of the Apocrypha. If it's conscious, there you go. It's impactful. If it's subconscious, there you go. It's impactful. It's become so, sort of a part of how they, how they think and their history. Um, so we'll just leave those as some of the benefits that it could inform the way we see things historically, culturally, as we read the New Testament. It could provide some color into how both the gospel writers and some of the um, 
the gospel and, and epistle writers, and perhaps some of Jesus' teaching, um, and into the early church fathers. The early church fathers quoted it even, that, that quoted it and interacted with the apocryphal books uh, more even than is explicit in, the, in, our, in our scripture. Um, so, helpful perhaps in those ways. Is it dangerous? Uh, or what are the vices in relationship to it? And I think, yes, there are certainly dangers to it. Um, and the fact that people have viewed it as scripture does, uh, like, it does make sense to me why there's sort of the, like, the, the anti-magnet away from it, where you're like, hang on, hang on. It's definitely not that. And we just want to rest assured, like sola scriptura. We don't need that. Let's just put that over here in order to elevate sola scriptura. I think that, that it does make sense why that's happened. And I've certainly been um, impacted by that. Like I didn't grow up hearing about the apocrypha. It's not a part of a lot of the way that most Protestant churches think or interact. And that's probably a good thing. So danger because some people view this text as God's word. Yeah, certainly caution there. Danger, definitely. And you see, a ne- you see negative examples of this. And I want to remind us of this one for a moment. The danger of building theology from the Apocrypha, which is what was happening. Like it had a religious impact, a theological impact that was misleading. So let's go back for a moment, just revisit the, uh, the Colossian issue that, that we came across there. So in the intertestamental period from Ben Sirach, he views the logos, this Greek idea of word, he views the logos and wisdom or Sophia as the same thing. He views them similarly. They're synonymous. Uh, and uh, because he did that, then when you have the New Testament, like, and the word became flesh, you have the Logos becoming flesh. Well, according to Ben Sirach, what is that? That's the Sophia becoming flesh. That's wisdom becoming flesh. And so you had people begin to view Jesus as a one-to-one with wisdom in the wisdom literature. He is wisdom birthed. He is wisdom incarnate. Now, here's a quote from uh, Ben Sirach from Wisdom 7, 25 and 26. She... Uh, Sophia, is the breath of the power of God and a pure influence flowing from the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, can no defiled thing fall into her, for she is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror of the power of God, and the image of his goodness. So, Logos, Sophia, and image are synonymous. And it's in that context that the Arian controversy was born. It's in that, because Arius was very familiar with this idea. And he's like, well, Sirach says, you know, the Sophia is the Logos. He says that she's the image. So when we read in Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God. We're talking about Sophia. We're talking about wisdom. So when I go back and I read Proverbs, Arius says, and it says that wisdom was the first created thing in Proverbs 8, then my perspective is now that Jesus is the first created thing. And we saw that issue with the, with the word firstborn. What prompted that? An overvaluing of Ben Sirach. 
right? An apocryphal book that took on theological significance, that informed the way you read the text rather than the other way around. So that's one of the greatest dangers. Um, so then maybe a net, is it net negative or net positive? How, how should we or should we approach the Apocrypha at all? Certainly if we do, we do so carefully uh, and with knowledge of what these books are. Um, and we approach them non, non-canonically, not doctrinally, but perhaps historically or devotionally is a, maybe on the line of a word, but that, that it could have some, some benefit. When we do that, like if we have sola scriptura in mind and we understand what these books are, then I don't think there's much reason to be afraid of them to view them as something that will poison me or I might get hurt if I touch them, right? Like, which is sort of, it's a very superstitious way of looking at them. Like they're, they're evil books. They're intended to be like buried in the, in the desert and never looked at again. Um, I don't know that that's how we should approach them. I don't think that is. Neither do I think now it's like, okay, so everyone this week, let's get our apocryphas and let's start reading because these are interesting historical and devotional books. It's not that either. There may be the right time and the right place, ironically, a wise approach. There's the right time and the right place perhaps to interact with them, to learn some things historically, uh, to, to, to read old literature. They're old books that were impactful in the pre-Christ setting. They changed the way that Jews thought about certain things that might be good to know about at the right time in the right way. Now, to circle back to what I said at the beginning, the caveat. I'm not an Apocrypha scholar. I haven't read the whole Apocrypha. I've read pieces of it at different times as it's come up in study, right? Or, or as perhaps a, perhaps a commentator takes a note and he's like, hey, the, the Ben Sirach says this. Interesting. I might want to check that out. It might, might color my perspective or help. Because learning is good. Knowledge is good for us. Um, and at the same time, would, would we ever... So, so maybe we'll put it this way. Could you pick up the Apocrypha, um, interact with it a little bit, instead of watching a movie? Sure. Should we say, for my devotions today, I'm going to open Ecclesiasticus. <laughs> All right. So perhaps the question, what am I trading? Like on the grand scheme of, on the grand scale of things, we have a, a lot of very important information right here. Supreme, supreme um, scripture here. So, yeah. Well, maybe we'll leave it at that. It, could you trade it for a movie? Sure, maybe trade it for a movie. Could you trade it for scripture? Certainly not. Okay. Um, questions. <laughs> Probably less than any topics I will have answers. If I can have a like, no idea, but I'll look, then questions. So you said you didn't want to get into canonicity because that's a long subject, but did you, do you have anything to say generally about why they were not the early church necessarily, but why they're 
word regarded as scripture? Yeah, so I think there's an easy answer and maybe a more difficult answer. And I think the easy answer is because they were never breathed out by God. Okay, so that's the, like, that's the easy answer. But then there were, uh, they, were, they were never regarded by the Jewish family as canonical. No one, no, when someone's writing Tobit, they're like, Why, wait, Scripture? Like, they're not trying to write Scripture. It's not, these are not what would be considered pseudepigraphal books. They're not like trying to dupe or to deceive people into thinking that. Um, so, it, I was, in fact, I was uh, reading, so the most impactful book about the Apocrypha that I've learned a lot of this from is by a guy named De Silva. And uh, if I remember correctly, what I was, he said is like, this is an oversimplification, but uh, if some of the early fathers hadn't mentioned the Apocrypha, they probably would have been forgotten, probably would have been gone forever because the Jews weren't considering them this way. They viewed it much like we would view Pilgrim's Progress. Like, ah, interesting, cool read, Bible. Right. Um, so that's helpful. Uh, then I think you have the nature of, you know, the canonical conversation down the road of the, 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 the um, gatherings of people to discuss uh, canonicity. What flowed out from this was it was a consistent, basically, base pack. <laughs> like, you have Scripture, and then in between Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and uh, some of the other uh, Eastern churches, you have varieties, like mishmashes of all the, all the apocryphal books where they'll, like, take and pick some of the varieties of them and put them in. But there's, there's no agreement about which ones. Um, so... There would be other New Testament answers to that too, uh, tests of canonicity that were, that were established. But do you have something to add to that? Or is that? I was just curious about like, when you say they did, that, yeah, I knew that the Jewish canon was closed in Malachi by the Jewish thinking. And that continued through the apocryphal writing. I was trying to figure out what you meant they, like which Jews were you, Masoretes, Second Temple Jews, like, because there's a big uh, 800 year gap until we get to the Masoretes, who then gave us the Hebrew text by preserving it, right? By, mm -hmm. by describing it. So I was wondering which group of Jews you're saying, like, did it, because if it was so impactful, they are, they're, as far as what you've read, they're like saying, they're saying this is impactful, but it's not the same thing as, as Moses. Right. 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 So my understanding, reserve the right to redact this, is that I don't believe there's a group of Jews that viewed this canonically, that viewed these books canonically. Yeah. I, I always laugh because, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess maybe back in those days, you would just, you would look at it as just, you know, other writers that are in the day. It's like, you know, who knows, maybe... Maybe the, the, the scripture writers were looking at them as a, uh, you know, it, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not okay, right? It's not. Mm -hmm. I mean, hypothetically speaking. The funny part with me, whenever I hear about the Apocrypha, because it just, it just it, mm -hmm. is when 
when I left the Catholic Church, Judith in the Bible, because <laughs> I wasn't thinking about any of these things. And I was like, "There's." He's like, "No, it was. It was in the Bible." I'm like, "No, there's no Judith in the Bible." We got in this argument, and I felt so retarded because, you know. Then I got off the phone with him. I'm like, "There's not Judith in the Bible. Judith in the Bible. You know." And I go back and look, and I'm like, "There's no Judith in the Bible." And then I'm like, "Wait a second. So then I go to my Catholic Bible, the Good News Bible, and sure enough. There was Judith. So I was like, oh, da, 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 da. I'm like, oh, well, here's the, you know, this is why it's not in the Bible. But what, what happens is, and this is another way Satan loves to do things, and to make people, you know, not even try to read the Bible, is that, well, what Bible should I read then? You know, what, if it's not in that Bible, it's not in this Bible. So it's like my, now my cousin just thinks that I'm, you know, crazy because the Bible that I read is not the Bible. Because it doesn't have Judith in it. <laughs> it's just, it sucks. I was a very good altar boy. I watched, I, I watched that bread turn into the body of Christ. And I watched that wine turn into the blood. No, when I was young, I it never, it, it, I always thought that. I was like, this is stupid. How, this doesn't change. That's, but I, yeah, I was very involved in the Catholic Church. I was, mm -hmm. I was, I seriously, I was, I was, even as a child. It does, yeah, it does make for confusion, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Ethan, do you have something? Okay, so from my limited perspective, I believe that, that the difference between the two is apocryphal and pseudepigraphal. That, so take, for example, some of the other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or something like this. Uh, this is someone whose um, intent, like, be, because the early church had so much rapid dissemination of writing and truth, that there were a variety of people at that time that were like, okay, there's more than four uh, disciples, right? Thomas is another. There's a, there's a gospel of Peter. So let's write in their name and send this out. 
and that it, what the intention was to deceive, was to get attention, was to get, gather followers, that sort of a thing. And so I don't believe that we would, like, we're not going to read those with the same benefit. And when you look at some of them, they're, like, outright blasphemous. They're uh, um, things like, you know, Jesus growing up, what he was like growing up, and how, uh, I don't know, he was... I don't even remember all of it, but like he's angry at his teacher at school, but he can't, you know, go be angry at his teacher at school. So he goes out into the woods and he uh, just screams and a bird falls down dead or it's like something like this. And you're like, you know, and he's sorrowful, but at least he didn't sin against his teacher. You're just like, what's happening? It's like, uh, no, I don't believe we read them the same way. Um, that's my understanding of the, the contrast between the two. And I th- that's that's my understanding of the distinction. Do I have green light green light from your understanding too? Okay. Is that it's nearly every one of the pseudepigraphals are blasphemous or heretical? Like there's no like historical. They're all. I mean, I think all of them. Context is king. Mm-hmm. And uh, we oftentimes modify our interpretation of scripture because of our historical context. Mm-hmm. Are there cases where we need to modify our interpretation of scripture because of the historical context of those books? Um. So the exact way you phrase the question are the ways we need to modify it. I don't think that that's the case, no. Because um, while cultural information is helpful and does at times like shed light on something, though when we say context is king, like we're, we're also saying that the text, the context of the text is king and it interprets, like Scripture interprets Scripture and and if we, let's just say we have no, no other books, no cultural knowledge, right? Um, what we do have is the promise of the Holy Spirit to guide his people into the truth. And does he use means of other literature? He could. I, th- I think he certainly could to, to shed light on truth. Does he need the Apocrypha? No, certainly not. Uh, or other, Josephus, right? So, no, um, I don't think that we go read the Apocrypha and now we understand the New Testament. Of course not. Um, But if we were to dive into it, are there some scholars that have uh, jumped in there and been like, oh, this is helpful because this, okay, you see this parallel or you see this echo or something like that? Great. The more you know, the more you know. That's helpful. But no, we don't obviously need Apocrypha to make sense of the text. Go ahead. Uh, I've read where the uh, golden rule is found in a lot of other ancient 
like Zoroastrian scriptures have uh, an approximation of the golden rule and, and I've read where there are some others but when Christ says something that's true um, I mean it may be that the principle might be true quoted someplace else just because it's it's true mm -hmm. and Syriac, Syriac says it doesn't mean that Jesus was depending on Sirach. Right. Doesn't mean that it's, you know, he's quoting Sirach. Uh, this is something that's true not just in this period or within this example, but this is true throughout all of, all of human history. So take, for example, the, that almost every culture has a flood narrative or a creation epic. Okay, great. Probably because there was a creation and a flood. But we, it, this isn't just our iteration of that. It's not that we depend on that. Um, take, um, you know, I'm currently working a little bit in Proverbs. So Solomon is, is a Jewish wise man. Every culture has wise men. Right? Every culture has this principle of the elders and the ones who are speaking truth. And there is, at some points, a lot of crossover. They're saying a lot of the same thing Solomon's saying. But then they come to Solomon and they say, but you say it bigger and better than we ever could have. And why is that? Well, he has the, the worldview, the lens of Yahweh, and he has Yahweh's wisdom, which is true wisdom, right? So there's a lot of things that we would, you know, learn or moral principles that, that flow from other books of Revelation, right? Like the books of conscience or the book of uh, study of God's world, uh, cause and effect or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, and so, interestingly, even in um, Proverbs, you have one of the sections. It's the, the, the 30 sayings of the wise. It's originally Egyptian. This comes from the Egyptian wisdom corpus. And Solomon adopts it and adapts it. He's like, yeah, close. Let me show you Yahweh's truth here. Like, I'm going to put the name of the Lord into it because that would be true. As soon as you say it in your context, you're wrong <laughs> because you're talking about your gods. That's wrong. And there's some things you haven't seen. There's, and which is why everybody flocked to him. All the wise men of all the world came to Solomon, right, to see him. So I think there's a variety of other examples of things like that um, where, yeah, you see some maybe uh, echoes backwards of, like, yeah, you're, you're close. You're right. Don't we see that in, don't, don't LDS people say some true things? Sure. You have some moral principles that flow out of your theology? Yeah. Does that mean that our theology is depending on yours? Well, one, not historically, obviously, no, because theirs is younger than ours, but go older than them, you know? Um, so, anyways, that's a couple thoughts in response to your couple thoughts. Matt? Jesus actually does this a lot in the parables. Um, one of my premier books on the parables I love is called mm -hmm. Stories with Intent. And in that book, the, the author, he takes one section as each parable to give the Old Testament like allusions. And then he'll give like, here's the Greek parable. Symbol, Ancient here's Near the Eastern. Babylonian, here's the yeah. Egyptian parable, parable, parable. And it's like you come away realizing most of the parables are not original, so to speak, with the incarnate Christ. But that you start to realize, well, that makes sense. Because the parables 
are always a simple, they're, they're natural theology. Mm -hmm. They're a simple enough story that even a non-believer, it can resonate with them. The unforgiving servant. You don't have to even be a Christian or believe in God to like come away and go, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Because of conscience. Because of conscience, Romans chapter 2. But then when you get in depth, you realize the same thing, what Jesus is doing. I think these, the parables are reflecting wisdom literature. But what he's doing is he's doing two things. One, he's making them better. He often adds a surprising twist. So he sets it on his head. The way the ending is supposed to work out doesn't usually work out that way. And then he adds himself or gospel or something to the kingdom into it to give it its truest meaning and application. Which reveals the emptiness of the parable before Jesus said right. it. Right. It's like you can be good but not good enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm just giving you an example like that. And so he, actually a lot of the parables when I was reading through them, I studied the parables, a lot of them have apocryphal connections that Jesus used. And this is to support your point why maybe it could be helpful when you're reading a difficult thing like a parable and it seems to come out of nowhere mm -hmm. by seeing its historical context whether it's apocrypha or some other cultural meaning can actually help us interpret it correctly in that sense as Jesus intended because he's telling them something that would resonate with them and yet the so the idea of people always could get confused with the parables because they're like well, didn't he say he did to conceal? Mm -hmm. The part he's concealing is not the understanding of the parable. The part he's concealing with those that don't have ears to hear ear and eyes to see is the fulfillment he is mm -hmm. in that parable. So in other words, he's not trying to conceal from them um, that there's good ground and bad ground. They would walk away going, I have no idea how sowing and reaping works. That's weird. But they would not understand that he's talking about his words that they hear, unless they have ears to hear and eyes to see, right? Yeah. But it's very similar. That's, and that trips a lot of people up when they're reading the parables. They get in depth in them, and they're like, oh, great, Jesus, like, you know, you read commentaries, and they say, well, Sirach, and this, and this, and then mm -hmm. people are, like, freaked out because Jesus told a parable that an Egyptian also told. And then that's that. I think that's so this, quite possible. This whole conversation, it does teach us and it instructs us well in how to interact with other literature or cultural ideas or cultural books, right? You have Paul quoting some of the philosophers of the day and, and you have Jesus referencing other literature and Solomon referencing other literature. We don't have to be afraid of books that aren't the Bible or of ideas that aren't biblical. In fact, the Bible equips us to interact with them. The Bible teaches us what is true, so that then when we interact with them, we're able to say, right, wrong, good idea, here's where it's off. Like, we, we have the ability to do that. Um, and that's helpful uh, for conversation, too, right? You can hear someone, which is amazing to me always, that people are very free and adamant with their ideas in ways that often Christians aren't. <laughs> we, just, uh, we tend to be less, maybe, like, assertive and verbal. But they just, like, state these things, like, confidently, this is it. Here's, the, here's how the world works, and here's why it works. And as a believer, we can say, we don't have to be like paralyzed by that. We can say, interesting idea. There's some truth in there. Here's maybe an idea that would, that would move you in the right direction. Right? We, we're able or to read a book and not be like, well, that book's not the Bible, so I can't read it. Or the author has things I disagree with, so 
that's a bad book. No. We have the, the ability and the insight to interact because we have the self-revelation of God. So... New Testament writers, kind of the liberal faction, because they wrote in Greek. <laughs> I was thinking about that when you were talking about conservatives and liberals. Mm -hmm. You do see the, the impact of the cultural shift, don't you? I tried to find a, a good, something that wasn't part of another Bible, like a, uh, an app or something like that, that had all the apocryphal books in it. I yeah, I actually, I kind of had a hard time accessing it without getting a, a Bible as well. So I'm sure it's there. I'm sure you, I'm sure it's even probably on Amazon something. I just didn't want to buy it. So, <laughs> you know, not that I shouldn't have, right? Maybe I should have. It's just a book, you know? Uh, but yeah, yeah. If I put it in my library, if I had a, a separate book, the Apocrypha, Right, right, and it's just with other, there's a whole bunch of books in there and in there, and it, right? So do understand why it's contentious, right? Because all those other books people aren't saying are scripture. That does make it spicier, doesn't it? <laughs> so... I really just interacted with, so there's one really leading book, and I don't know exactly if I'd recommend it for just everybody to read, which you could. Um, but it's, a, it's an introduction to the Apocrypha by De Silva. Um, yeah, so I, I'd, I would have to think a little bit more. I didn't, I didn't do a dig on that. Um, it was certainly helpful from the standpoint of just kind of understanding where it's from. He he would have a perspective that's a, a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit f further from mine toward like embracing it, towards setting it, toward um, the benefits, the strong, strong benefits that it produces. And he is an apocryphal scholar, so he would have eyes to see the benefits more than I do, I suppose. But uh, yeah, he's a little bit further left probably than we'd go with. Everybody recommending him is like Princeton and <laughs> like a lot of the very liberal <laughs> education. So I know there are some people who have written on it, but not very many Protestants have written on the Apocrypha because not very many Protestants have read the Apocrypha. I <laughs> have no, interacted with it. <laughs> okay. Maybe a uh, uh, text in Canon Institute, maybe back, circle back to scribes and scriptures, maybe circle back to John Mead and Peter Gurry because they have read it and interacted with it and are very careful and from a solid theological institution. So probably text and Canon would be <laughs> come full circle there, huh? The people that we trusted to speak to us about transmission and probably trust to speak about the Apocrypha. Okay, let's pray.